Welcome. You're listening to a UC Davis Center for Poverty Research conference podcast. I'm the center's director, Ann Stevens. In November 2013, the center hosted the conference, The Affordable Care Act and Low-Income Populations, Lessons from and Challenges for Research. The conference featured top healthcare experts from across the country to discuss the rollout of the Affordable Care Act and what the new system means for poverty in the United States. In this presentation, Peter Cunningham discusses his research on how the Affordable Care Act might affect how safety net hospitals that primarily serve poor populations care for their patients. Cunningham is a senior fellow and director of quantitative research at the Center for Studying Health System Change. What uh, what I'm going to be talking about uh, this afternoon kind of comes from a a number of different uh, sources. Uh, uh, The organization that I work for, the Center for Studying Health System Change, we've done a lot of analyses of healthcare markets. Uh, These have been very broad in scope, but they've also focused on safety net systems, including safety net hospitals. Uh, We've done them nationally. They were part of the community tracking study. We also did a study in California funded by the California Healthcare Foundation, uh, 2009 and 2012, a study of six California healthcare markets, Sacramento was included in that. Uh, and then we sort of use that experience as well as the experience of lots of other people. Uh, now that we're, we are uh, working with the Federal Department of Health and Human Services uh, to help them develop a system for uh, monitoring and tracking uh, the effects of the Affordable Care Act on uh, on safety net hospitals as we go forward. Uh, Part of that includes developing a quantitative database of of safety net hospitals and projecting um, what the effects of the Affordable Care Act are going to be. Obviously, that's far into the future. So today, I'm going to talk mainly about what, what what we think are some of the most important research questions, hypotheses, as well as a conceptual framework. Uh, for understanding what's, what we think is going to happen here. So it's always useful to start with a uh, definition of safety net hospitals, and I'm, I'm glad that my definition is consistent with the definition that Dr. Katz used this morning. Uh, it comes from the Institute of Medicine. Uh, it's probably the most, the most widely used or cited. I guess one, one thing that I would add is that in addition to uh, providers that deliver a significant level of care to low-income populations, that the provider by mandate or mission offers offers access to care regardless of the patient's ability to pay. I think that's important because some safety net hospitals aren't necessarily located in areas where, you know, there's a very high uninsured population or a very high Medicaid population, but because of their mission, they do take people regardless of them of their ability to pay. Now what makes this definition difficult to operationalize in a research sense uh, is really this area, the, you know, what is significant level of care because the vast majority of hospitals, short-term general hospitals, deliver some amount of care to uninsured and Medicaid enrollees. It varies a lot from hospital to hospital and so some, some uh, Obviously, that's their mission. That's the main thing they do. Others do a fair amount, and some do very little. So uh, what, what's kind of stymied researchers or where we haven't really been able to find a consistent definition is, well, what's that line or what's that threshold? And it's something that's going to vary, uh, basically, from community to community. So just, 
you know, so for now I'll just kind of describe uh, the different types of safety net hospitals. Um, and public hospitals are, when we think of safety net hospitals, I think uh, most people think uh, first and foremost of public hospitals, that uh, these are owned and, and financed by city or county governments. Sometimes they comprise only a single hospital. Uh, sometimes they incorporate a large system, the LA County Healthcare System, Chicago, New York City. Uh, you know, so when we look across all hospitals, you know, roughly about a fifth are, are government owned, uh, the way that they're, they're usually classified in the data. Uh, and, and these hospitals, they definitely provide a disproportionate amount of care to uninsured persons. They, they provide the bulk of uncompensated care. And there, there's even a smaller group uh, that are members of the National Association of Public Hospitals, which recently changed their name to America's Essential Hospitals. And these are about 100 of the, the biggest and you, know, you might say the most hardcore uh, safety net hospitals. And they, and, they, and they estimate that they comprise 2% of hospitals, but they provide about 25% of all uncompensated care. So definitely, um, there's a big concentration of care to the uninsured and Medicaid uh, in government hospitals or public hospitals. But not every, not every community has a public hospital. Uh, I believe Sacramento is, is one example. There is no public hospital in Sacramento. And so other hospitals uh, step in, to some extent at least, to fill the void. And a lot of these are academic medical centers. Uh, also called teaching hospitals. So I believe in, uh, in Sacramento, UC Davis is considered one of the, uh, uh, one of the big safety net hospitals. Um, and so these, and they receive government funds, uh, usually Medicare subsidies to support teaching and also here to the uninsured. There's also religious affiliated hospitals. And most of these are private, uh, but there's also a lot of big hospital systems such as you know, Trinity, Catholic Healthcare West, these are big major hospital systems, but they're religious affiliated. Some people say they're acting more corporate these days, but they still have that religious mission to serve the uninsured. There's critical access hospitals, these are primarily rural, and, and this is a designation that the federal government uses to, uh, uh, to, to uh, identify rural hospitals. Uh, that basically they're the only game in town and, they, and it's very difficult for them to survive so they get higher reimbursement from Medicare. And then there's the probably 2,000 or some other private hospitals. Most of these are not-for-profits, uh, but they also include some for-profit. Again, most of these hospitals provide some amount of uncompensated care. And the ones that probably provide more of a safety net role tend to be those that are going to be located in communities uh, where there is no public hospital or where there's an academic medical center but they don't they don't fill all of the safety net role. And San Diego is one uh, community that comes to mind where again the University of California San Diego uh, they have a medical school there they, they are a major safety net hospital, but there's, other, there's two other systems, Sharps and Scripps, uh, private voluntary systems, uh, that also are considered big safety net providers in those, in those communities. 
So if we just kind of focus on uh, the 100 or so member hospitals from the National Association of Public Hospitals, uh, this is, you know, in general, what safety net uh, hospital patients look like. Uh, about a third uh, are Medicaid, 25% uh, are Medicare, 18% uninsured, and 19% commercial. And maybe the commercial is a little bit surprising because, again, we're, when we're talking about the real hardcore safety net hospitals, we don't normally think in terms of, well, you know, why do uninsured, uninsured people or privately insured people go there? Well, in a lot of cases, uh, safety net hospitals um, provide, like, the, the key services in the community for trauma, burn care. Uh, sometimes they uh, are considered leaders in the community for other service lines like cardiac or oncology. So it isn't out of the question that you do get privately insured patients who go there. Now in terms of where um, uh, in terms of where the safety net hospitals get their revenue, again these are the hundred or so members of the uh, National Association of Public Hospitals. Uh, more than a third comes from Medicaid. And that includes not only uh, revenue from direct reimbursement for services, uh, but subsidies, additional subsidies called disproportionate share hospital payments that are made to sort of compensate for the fact that Medicaid usually pays below cost uh, and also to help support and compensate care. Uh, Medicare is another 21%. Uh, commercial is 27%. Uh, and then they get public subsidies. These would be from local, state, or other federal sources. And then obviously they only get 2% of the revenue directly from uninsured persons in the form of self-pay. So if you look across, uh, if you look across all of this, about three-fourths of revenue uh, for the, the major safety net hospitals uh, come from government sources. So government funding uh, is critical for these hospitals. So what, so what are safety net providers, kind of how are they doing uh, now right on the eve of the implementation of the ACA? Uh, and again, I'm making, these are, it's always, one thing I'm going to always say is, well, it varies from hospital to hospital and community to community. Community, but these are some broad uh, general observations. One is that there's increasing demand for care by uninsured persons. And that's a result of the recession, uh, the increase in the number of uninsured. Uh, you see the continued erosion of employer sponsored coverage. And so, and then you see other hospitals, uh, sort of non safety net hospitals, that have kind of cut back on providing charity care uh, because. You know, they're trying to control their costs as well. Uh, you're seeing a decrease in, in public subsidies. And that's coming from, um, uh, and that's a result of uh, a lot of state local budget pressures, again, related to the recession, uh, reduced, and that includes reduced reimbursement for Medicaid and Medicare. So a lot of safety net hospitals are under a lot of financial strain because they're seeing demand for uninsured care go up, and a lot of the subsidies and payments that they get to support this going down. You see increasing competition with other hospitals. 
they may wonder, well, who competes for uninsured patients? Uh, well, no, they're not competing for uninsured patients. But again, a lot of safety net hospitals, uh, you know, they are considered a leader in their communities for some service lines. And when that happens, other hospitals want to get in on that. You know, they want to build a cardiac unit to compete with, with the safety net hospital or, or oncology. And as a result, many safety net hospitals are struggling financially. A lot of them have negative margins. Uh, on average, I think the margin is like 2% for safety net hospital, and that's compared to 7% nationally. I think that's for 2012. And then as Dr. Katz was describing, a lot of them are making preparations for uh, health reform as well, doing various things. Uh, streamlining activities, uh, increasing capacity to handle their expected increased demand, uh, developing linkages with primary care. Uh, but not all, not all hospitals are doing this. Uh, we saw this, uh, including in California. Uh, Fresno, for example, is a place where um, uh, there is no public hospital. And for various political maybe cultural reasons. Fresno was, I think, still is the only county in California that did not, that did not put out the uh, low-income health program, which is kind of a precursor to Medicaid, Medicaid expansions. And there's very little activity by any of the hospitals in that community uh, to prepare themselves for reform. So given that, uh, here's kind of the conceptual framework that we developed for kind of understanding how we think uh, the Affordable Care Act is going to affect safety net hospitals. And you know, I, I realize you probably can't read the fine print. I would worry about that for, for now. But you know, basically, uh, what's going to be driving what's going to be driving this? is a change in the number of uninsured people in the community, or rather, maybe the number of insured people in the community. Because that's going to create changes in demand for care at the hospital, which will in turn affect changes in hospital revenue and costs. So that'll be kind of the main driver, but there's going to be a lot of things that kind of interact with that, you know, if, if you will, that relate both to state and local policies regarding, for example, whether the state decided to expand Medicaid, you know, Medicaid reimbursement, coverage of benefits. Uh, and then there's contextual factors in the community that will affect how hospitals respond or, or adapt to health reform. And this is obviously one big one. It's going to be uh, the number of uninsured and the characteristics of the uninsured uh, in the community prior to reform. You know, the, the kinds of outreach and enrollment activities, you know, kind of a more grassroots approach to expanding coverage. Uh, there's aspects of the local delivery system. You know, how much competition is there between hospitals? What's the capacity? Uh, and then even idio more idiosyncratic attributes of the local hospitals. So the rest of the talk I'm going to spend just kind of covering uh, some of these things in more detail. First, uh, 
you know, what we think are going to be some of the most important outcomes to monitor. Uh, financial viability and performance is obviously one, because that's something that a lot of safety net hospitals struggle with. And I think maybe, maybe I don't know, I think a lot of safety net hospitals will say, well, we want some margin because we want resources to be able to invest uh, and upgrade. But frankly, for a lot of safety net hospitals, survival is a good outcome. They're not, they're not looking to rake in big profits. Uh, and then I think along with that, can, can safety net hospitals maintain their mission to serve the uninsured? Now, what, I, what do I mean by that? Uh, because what we've seen over the past decade is that as a lot of safety net hospitals have struggled financially, uh, they, they've begun to adopt some strategies that almost resemble the private and even for-profit hospitals. You know, trying to find ways to minimize their exposure to uncompensated care, develop service lines that attract more privately insured patients. Man, it doesn't mean that they're bad guys and they're shirking their responsibilities. They're trying to survive. In, a, in, a, in an increasingly difficult environment. Uh, what's also going to be key is their ability to provide access to care for those who remain uninsured. So there's going to be about 31 million, if everything goes well, they get the website fixed and everything else goes right, there'll be about 31 million uninsured people who remain. That's a lot. When I first got out of graduate school, that was about the number of uninsured people. So there's still a lot of uninsured people. And a lot of those who are going to remain uninsured are going to be undocumented immigrants who don't qualify for the Medicaid expansions. Uh, they don't qualify for the subsidies. And in some communities, and we know a lot of communities in California, a lot, a lot of the uninsured population are undocumented immigrants. Well, they're not going to really be, they're, they're not going to be benefiting from the insurance expansions in the ACA. And so there's still going to need to be safety net hospitals uh, that are there to meet their needs. Another important outcome is quality of care. And I don't mean just the sort of quality measures that CMS is developing, like you know, the 30-day readmission rates. Yeah, that's, that's important to some extent. But I think it's also what we're also talking about are sort of the types of quality measures that Dr. Katz was talking about, creating an integrated care system uh, with primary care providers, trying to reduce unnecessary ER utilization, create more coordinated care. You know, I think that's that's the type of quality that uh, that we also we all want to see in the healthcare system. So what's going to be the how is demand for care going to be affected? Well, obviously, there's going to be more insured. Uh, I think again. CBO had been estimating maybe about 14 or 15 million in the first year. They may be scaling that back, uh, but certainly about 20, 25 million or so within the next 10 years. Uh, but in terms of how that affects safety net hospitals, that's going to vary a lot depending on the size and the composition of the uninsured population before the ACA. It's going to depend on whether the state decides to expand Medicaid. That'll obviously be a big factor because as a result of the Supreme Court decision in 2012, states now have the option to expand Medicaid. And about 20, I think as of now, about 26 states are definitely planning to expand. Some, a lot of states are not, some states are undecided. 
Some states might flip, like close to home, Virginia, uh, which is not, right now, not planning to expand Medicaid, but they're going to have an election in, in a few weeks where the results may result in a governor that will expand Medicaid. So, it's, so that's still kind of a moving target. Uh, it's also going to depend on the success of ACA enrollment efforts at state. So it's, you know, again, here's where we get into kind of the, you know, the toxic politics of the ACA because, you know, for states it's not just a decision that they don't like Obamacare and they don't want to expand Medicaid, they also want to create obstacles uh, for the navigators uh, and some of the, the outreach and enrollment groups who are going around trying to enroll people in the exchanges. So how successful those are or not will, will affect demand for care. And as I mentioned uh, previously, the prevalence of undocumented immigrants. Certain communities, and Fresno is one, uh, where a lot of the uninsured population consists of undocumented immigrants, uh, that's not really gonna, that may not affect demand for care in that community uh, as much as other communities that have high uninsured rates but where most of the people are documented. Another factor is going to be whether uh, the hospital is included as an essential community provider in health plan networks. So the Affordable Care Act requires the inclusion of safety net providers in plans sold through the marketplaces. Uh, but not all plans, not all providers need to be included, and states have considerable discretion uh, in terms of deciding who's included. That's going to be a big factor because obviously they want to be, and it's not just whether they're included, but you know, kind of what, what the nature of the health plan is. Uh, and so a lot of safety net providers are very nervous about this. And then as I mentioned before, competition with other hospitals for the newly insured patients. So how are other hospitals going to respond? Are they going to see, oh, that, that safety net hospital used to have all these uninsured patients who now have coverage, are we going to go after them? So changes in patient revenue, uh, obviously with increases in coverage, uh, you're going to get increases in patient revenue from Medicaid and private insurance, but this revenue may not be commensurate with the increased demand to the extent that states cut back on reimbursement and benefits which they've done in recent years because of budget problems. Uh, and also Medicaid has historically covered more of the cost for inpatient rather than outpatient care. So if we see a shift towards more primary care and outpatient care, which a lot of people are expecting, uh, is Medicaid going to be paying for the right things or is it going to be weighted again more heavily for hospitals? Uh, and then there's a lot of uncertainty about reimbursement levels in the exchange plans. Are hospitals going to be paid at what are essentially Medicaid rates, or are they going to more resemble private, the more generous private insurance rates? And then a big issue, uh, which was made even more significant by, this, by the Supreme Court decision last year, are the reductions in public subsidies. And, and so most safety net hospitals get revenue, they get additional subsidies from Medicaid, and Medicare through dis disproportionate share hospital payments. But as part of the, the Affordable Care Act, uh, these subsidies are going to increase over time because the rationale is they're no longer needed 
as, as there's more insured people. Well, that, that rationale was developed before the Supreme Court decision when it was presumed all states would be expanding Medicaid. But now you've got the fact that probably that maybe half, half of the states may not be expanding Medicaid. And so that's, that's going to create a potential catastrophe uh, for some safety net hospitals who are in states where they're, they have very high insured rates, uh, but they're not going to see much of an increase in, in demand because the state's not expanding Medicaid, but the federal government is cutting their subsidy. Uh, that's going to be the major issue to watch. There's also a risk of further reductions in other state and local subsidies. You know, I think the fear is that, again, uh, state and local officials who are used to subsidizing the safety net are going to say, well, those subsidies are no longer needed or they're not needed as much because we solved the uninsured problem. Again, there's 31 million who are going to stay uninsured. It's not completely solved. And, so what, and there's also going to be impact on hospital costs, obviously to the extent that hospitals can reduce their income uncompensated care, that's a big impact on cost. But there could also be a potential increased cost because a lot of hospitals need to expand capacity to handle the expected increase in demand. Uh, there's upgrades in infrastructure, health information technology in particular, that are needed to sort of handle these new uh, delivery systems. There's going to be some increased regulatory burdens due to the Affordable Care Act. And that, that has to do with uh, sort of the community benefit reporting and, uh, uh, and monitoring community benefit. And then the penalties there for, for failing to meet quality standards man, uh, that have been mandated by Medicare. And that's uh, hosp hospital readmission rates. Uh, there's other things coming online. But it's not just a question of, well, they may be penalized for that, but you know they're going to need to make uh, upgrades in their infrastructure as, as well as care processes, and that's going to add to their costs. And then you've got the organization and dynamics of the local healthcare system. Uh, I think Ian will probably talk some more about system capacity, especially primary care. Uh, but you know, it's expected that there's, good, there's already primary care shortages, and those are going to be made worse, and that's going to put pressure on hospital emergency departments. Uh, hospital consolidation and competition. We've already talked about that. Uh, the structure of insurance markets. Again, you know, what are the networks going to look like? Are they going to include safety net providers? Uh, again, sort of the concentration of care to the uninsured. You know, is it concentrated in one big system or is it been more dispersed? Uh, and then these two things: experience with Medicaid managed care uh, and innovative reforms in payment and care delivery. I probably don't have time. Uh, to go into those, but you know, just to say something about Medicaid managed care, it's going to be the dominant vehicle used to expand Medicaid. Already about three-fourths of Medicaid enrollees are in managed care, but it's still expanding and it's going to include uh, some of the sickest and highest cost patients. And they're, and they're more challenged to deal with, they're tougher. Uh, and now some safety net hospitals uh, do operate their own Medicaid managed care plans and they have experience uh, with handling risk. And I think that's probably, uh, for those that have that experience, that could give them a leg up. Uh, innovations in care delivery and payment, 
again, those, these are some of the more lesser known features of the ACA, but you know, it's really, and there's a lot of different models, which obviously I only, only got about 10 seconds to, to cover, but um, you know, basically they're trying to achieve better value in, in healthcare, uh, incentivize providers to assume more responsibility for the care of patients rather than the current fee-for-service system, which providers are incentivized to provide more and more and more without really the outcomes, and encouraging greater integration and coordination of services to reduce the fragmentation that exists in healthcare. Uh, and these are, and you've probably heard of these, ACOs, patient-centered medical homes. You know, and so I think probably the biggest uh, implications for safety net hospitals, again, it's restructuring this, the system to incentivize primary care, reduce the need for inpatient care, increase the alignments between hospitals and primary care providers in the community, uh, potentially taking on greater financial risk of patients, which some safety net hospitals are better able and have more experience to do than others. Uh, but then there's also some barriers. Uh, the need for more funding, uh, for, for infrastructure and staffing, uh, and then just the risk profile of safety net patients make them, well, I guess, maybe riskier to manage risk, not only because of their, their health problems, uh, but because of a lot of the social and behavioral problems uh, that they have. I was going to talk about safety net hospitals in Massachusetts. I probably have time, so, um, so I, think in, I think just to kind of wrap up, uh, what we think uh, are, are going to be some of the key predictors of success for safety net hospitals with health reform. One is strong financial performance prior to the ACA, because if hospitals are, you know, if, they're, if they have negative margins and they're in debt, they're not going to have the resources uh, to do the capacity expansions and upgrades and infrastructure that are going to be needed. Strong executive leadership. Every safety net hospital needs a Dr. Katz. Um, you know, it's not just somebody, not, not just somebody who knows how to manage an organization, but somebody who knows, who knows, who understands the changes that are going on in the healthcare system and can adapt uh, the hospital to those circumstances. Trying to maintain the, the public subsidies is going to be key. Most of the major safety net hospitals cannot survive without these in one form or the other. Developing linkages with other providers in the community, particularly primary care. Uh, trying to develop some niches in their service lines so that they can either maintain their, their patients that become insured or attract other insured patients. Uh, and again, updating their infrastructure and capacity and making sure they're well represented in health plan networks. I'm Ann Stevens, the director of the Center for Poverty Research at UC Davis, and I want to thank you for listening. The center is one of three federally designated poverty research centers in the United States. Our mission is to facilitate nonpartisan academic research on domestic poverty, to disseminate this research, and to train the next generation of poverty scholars. Core funding comes from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. For more information about the center, visit us online at poverty.ucdavis.edu.